Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Dr. Pam King, I am really excited to talk to you. I've been excited for a while now. I got to see a couple, one of your lectures, and then I got to interact with you through one of these like theopsych fuller uh, psychology and theology little mini web seminars. And after that, we decided to do this episode. And your work covers so many areas of interest that, you know, I've got like some questions and really more some topics laid out. But I think we're just going to kind of flow and we'll hit them as we hit them and just talk through what the hell you're up to these days. <laughs> Sounds great. Before we just dive in somewhere, uh, and really, I don't even care where we start. Give us like a 30,000 foot view just for someone who's never heard of you. Mm-hmm. Like kind of what's your basic spiel? Awesome. Well, thank you. I have a pretty multifaceted basic spiel, which can allow me to be a little bit of a chameleon depending on my audience. Mm -hmm. But what I gather about you and your audience is it's pretty multidimensional. It is indeed. Um, So I am a social psychologist, a professor in a school of psychology at a seminary. I am an ordained Presbyterian minister and I do quite a bit of research. I am not a clinician. So most of my colleagues at Fuller on the School of Psychology are clinicians, but I'm my second card, or I shouldn't say second card, primary card is being a pastor. So 
that I love. But my classroom tends to be more my congregation because I don't have a, a affiliation with the church, but rather to the seminary. Yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah, a lot of times that I talk to people here who have some ideas about sort of faith and psychology, mm-hmm. they often see clients. And mm-hmm. that is their kind of, you know, they might teach or they may have written a book or something. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it comes from clients like Mark Karras, who's been a very popular previous guest, has a full-time private practice. Mm-hmm. You're coming from more of a, you're doing the research university part mm-hmm. of all this mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So the thing that pushes my button um, in a good way is is really wanting to understand what enables people to thrive. And I had a pretty spontaneous moment when Craig Dutweiler, who you might know, when I was 26 and had just moved to Pasadena to go to Fuller, said, Pam, what what pushes your button? What are his words? And I was like, uh, helping people thrive and become who God created them to be. And I heard myself say it was almost an out-of-a-body, out-of-body moment and thought, yeah, that is really what so much of my life is about. And it's been, it's a pretty extraordinary sense of call because it captures my life as a mother, as a friend, as a wife, as a teacher, as a researcher, and as a pastor of really wanting to enable people to thrive and become who God created them to be. But I realized as I got into that, I was like, well, what does thriving mean? That sounds really good. Or becoming who God created you to be, but how how does that happen and and what does that mean? So a lot of my scholarship and research has really gone into asking that question of, of what is thriving? How do we think about thriving for diverse persons in different places, different ages, different socioeconomic status? culture, even times in history. So that that has been a really guiding question for my work in my life in the last couple of decades. I think maybe a good way into talking about thriving, and I <laughs> I really hope that this is not kind of a, an interviewer overstep here, but I want to sort of paint a little picture for listeners. So the first time I saw you lecture, mm-hmm. and I think that this is a standard experience, <laughs> I was surprised, and let me say why, you are like a tall, conventionally attractive, blonde <laughs> Los Angeles woman. And you and your hair is done and you are dressed really smartly. And I just don't I have gotten to a point in my life where I don't expect someone who looks like you to deliver the kind of firebrand lecture on, you know, evolutionary psychology, whatever it is. Right. That I experienced from you. And I would guess that a lot of people have this experience with you the first time they interact. Mm. And that actually makes me think of you are in the L.A. area Mm. and there is a. When I think of the word thrive, one of the versions of it is a kind of an L.A. thing, which mm. is, I think, often times not very detailed. It's not very attentive to mm. the thriving of diverse populations. Mm-hmm. It's actually very kind of consumerist and um, just a bunch of wealthy, wealthy, beautiful, happy people telling a bunch mm. of poorer, less beautiful, less mm. happy people how they can be like these famous people. Mm. Do you know what I'm talking about? That kind of L.A. vibe, that kind of self-help vibe? <laughs> yes. Yes, I which, do. I which do. purports to be sort of spiritually open minded mm-hmm. and insightful, mm-hmm. but is actually mm-hmm. pretty vapid. So I think there's a fun interplay of all of that. And I don't even I don't even really know how to connect all that stuff. But it's another way in to thinking about what you're doing, because as you were describing 
even just in the basics of thriving, mm-hmm. like the, the stuff you chose to point out, becoming mm-hmm. who God made you to be, thinking mm-hmm. about diverse populations, mm-hmm. like already we're getting such a more robust and sort of research-based mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. But in this like California girl package, which I just think is I just love it. It's it's I love it that it's confounding in that way. Yeah, you that's so that was really definitely not where I thought you were gonna go, but I love that you went there because like I mean, thriving is this fullness of life in the complexities of of who we are. It's a very embodied thing. And you're right. Los Angeles is a really unique place where there is a vibe um, and a lot of expectations. And I, I do check the box in a lot of ways, at least upon first impressions. Mm-hmm. But I can't tell you how that works against my favor in the academic world. Um, I'm sure. And I don't want to be Julia Roberts in Notting Hill, where she's the sob story of as the actress. But I, I often find people don't take me seriously. And that's a bummer. You know, I. And I do. And I, and because I knew who you were, I, I was never tempted not to take you seriously. But I'm sure that that does happen. And I'm sure that that's an interesting dynamic that basically all female academics mm-hmm. have experienced to mm-hmm. some degree or mm-hmm. another. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, thankfully, women are just comprising a greater and greater percentage of all our best thinkers. And they're going to wipe that shit off the face of the earth. <laughs> you guys are. But does it also open doors for you in terms of like, are the are there populations who will accept or listen to you mm. with the really good stuff you have to say, who would normally only let in a more of a, a simplistic and surfacey kind of analysis? Do you ever mm-hmm. find the flip side of that coin? Yes, I do. I do. And it's interesting. I shared with you off before we started that I have three teenagers. So my life is really full. So I've actually kept my speaking and my work pretty literally close to home in Fuller because of the demands of my life right now. But I have found the more I get out or when I am out, I am pretty good at opening audiences up. And whether that's personality or warmth or long blonde hair that might be having (laughs) a good hair day today, um, or it's a scientific background or it's a religious background or a person who's deeply steeped in a life of attempt of faith, that I am pretty good at opening various audiences, or I find people receptive, which I appreciate. And I I am pretty intuitive at figuring out what is the door that needs to be opened in this room, whether it's science, you know, empirical data, theology, Bible verses, uh, you know, current humor, hashtag, uh, uh, a foul, <laughs> I've been known for foul language, you know, yeah. I, I'm pretty good at addressing or yeah, with kids in different types of schools. I'm pretty good at school crowds, parent crowds. Yeah. Um, I'm getting older. So like I've crossed quite a few decades at this point. So I'm pretty good at a lot of, but, but that's been great. And then I love finding an entry point and then being able to bring what I hope is a really robust and substantive offering of what thriving is. And, and my desire is to give people a vision of a really meaningful, full life that matters that they can pursue. Whether they're coming out of Santa Monica and a trendy vibe life, or they're coming out of a really repressive religious background that is all about conformity. And that's yeah. not necessarily conformity to the image of God in Christ. It's behavioral conformity. So I really look for different angles in and then try to expand people's imagination about what their life as individuals and corporately with humanity can be about. 
That's awesome. I mean, that's a real skill. And it's something that I've been thinking about more and more as I, you know, work on my own research and start thinking mm-hmm. about how I'm going to be presenting it and, and to mm-hmm. whom and what audiences, mm-hmm. you know, if I could exclusively speak, you know, to like overweight men at craft breweries, <laughs> you know, then I then I'd be in every everywhere I went. But that's not what it's going to be like. And so, you know, I have my own kind of physical image and I have to think about how to. So that that is itself a real a real skill. It's it's probably a communicative and cognitive skill but not one i've given a ton of thought to so it's interesting to bring it up but i'll tell you the funniest door opener ever yeah in 1997 i was doing a second internship for my ordination and i had been at menlo park presbyterian church a very large church now known as the menlo church for four years and so my presbytery was like you need to find a small church so being the very obedient person i can be at times i found the smallest church in pasadena and was interning there and it had quite and i think the mean age was 79 wow so older generation this was the 90s so they're yeah. born in early you know 1900s and one of the comments i got was well i don't listen to female preachers but your voice was okay. So I kept coming to hear you preach because you have a nice, soothing voice. I can't stand scratchy female voices. I was like, wow, that's a new one. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it is, it's kind of like, I don't want to give the impression that like what I'm most interested in, in this conversation is like this talk around aesthetics and being yep. confounded. Of course it's not, but it is, it, it is, I was more struck than usual when I first was watching you. And it just did make me think of like, oh, there's maybe something there that's kind of interesting. And, you know, it's like Jonathan Haidt says, if you want to pass gun control legislation, like Mm. you don't have a democratic politician or, you know, talk to voters. You have like a retired military general, a retired NFL head coach. That's your spokesperson for gun control. You You know, like know your audience. Like that is a part of persuasion. Uh Mm -hmm. And, if we pretend that we're not trying to persuade people, we're, we're bullshitting ourselves. Mm. We are trying to do really good work. You have done much more of it than I have. But once you've done careful work, you want people to understand it. And then it's a different kind of strategy at that mm-hmm. point than mm-hmm. the initial mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. But let's get to the work itself. Okay. So thriving is actually where I'd sort of like to end up. Okay. In one of your talks, you kind of gave this flow chart of like religion into virtue, into thriving. Mm, mm -hmm. And I think that might be a kind of a nice Mm. rough, rough structure for our conversation. Great. And then we'll go wherever we go. So if that's the structure, the context is religion. The thing Mm -hmm. we're building in ourselves Mm. is Mm -hmm. virtue. And then Mm. the end result is thriving. Mm. Is that, Mm -hmm. first of all, is that a good way of saying it? Well, I get really picky on end results because thriving is a process. So it's, I often have been known to say it's not a destination, but rather it's a direction. So, okay. Maybe instead of end result, like the consequence of our virtue yes, is yes, thriving, yeah. mm-hmm, which is ongoing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. So then let's start with religion. So okay. it, religion and the context of religion in the mm-hmm. United States that we find ourselves mm-hmm. in today. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What, what do you think is important to kind of lay out mm-hmm. with virtue and thriving as our, yeah. as our conversational destinations? <laughs> I like that. To be clear. So, yeah, semantic destination. So this is a great question. And actually, it's really autobiograph- 
autobiographical as well in terms of my scholarly work. So where I really started as a social scientist was trying to unpack for other social scientists why religion and spirituality is worth looking at. Because when I started my PhD work in the late 90s, there was no positive psychology, or if it was, there was, you know, two people talking about it in Pennsylvania. Will you define positive psychology? Because that's that's a really important subfield for what we're going to talk about. And we've talked about it a little bit on the show, but not Mm -hmm. a ton. Yeah. So, and I will say like, I'm not totally a positive psychologist. I'm a positive developmental psychologist, but so I will speak from the area of positive developmental psychology, which has often points it saying that psychology has evolved as a field to look at what goes wrong with people. So psychologists treat pathology, mental health is actually defined by mental illness. And when I started doing psychology, Mental health and well-being was literally measured and defined by the absence of pathology. Yeah, just if you don't have a disorder, you're mentally yeah. healthy. Yeah, exactly. So if you're not anxious, and I was looking at youth, if you're not anxious, incarcerated, delinquent, anorexic, you know, pregnant as a minor, you were doing well. Um, and that is uh, actually as as a person of faith that left me really frustrated and unsatisfied. Like, no, we need a better vision for young people in this country. And my faith has resources for that. So like, why doesn't psychology? So I kind of put my theological work on hold for a bit, had written about this reciprocating self-concept, and then went and pursued my PhD and did areas of work in this. And I was really... I think intuitively convinced that faith could be helpful to kids, but not always. We know it can go totally wrong. So over time, my research has really focused on the resources within religion. And I actually will define religion and spirituality differently, but I think they're overlapping. Mm -hmm. But people have access to belief systems and, and actually, you know, COVID really knocked it out of the park, demonstrating that people need transcendent belief systems. You you need to know what end is up. You need to know what matters. You need to know where help might come from, what you might have hope in. And I don't think our society has been pressed in that way for decades. How would you say it's become clear that COVID has shown that? Like you probably were looking for different things during the COVID break, uh, pandemic and lockdown than most of us were looking for. Mm. What were mm-hmm. you looking for and, and what have you seen? Mm. Well, I've really seen, I mean, it's really interesting, even within like the peer reviewed psychological literature, people are actually talking about beliefs, which is nuts. Like I've hardly ever seen that in the psychological literature, you know, because of the adversity and challenge. And at times, even what we would call trauma in COVID, people were looking to cope. So Mm. it was like, how do I make sense? How do I make meaning? How do I refine order in my life when I've been stripped of my normal peeps? You know, I don't know where toilet paper is for a while and and reestablishing how to make life. And and in those times we need, we're forced to ask what matters and and what's bigger than me. Is that the same thing as the, the term that gets thrown around in the literature a lot of meaning making? Um, Some of that is. So as a psychologist, we understand that there are beliefs that are out there. So I grew up in a family that was really into health food in the Midwest. When I was in Sunday school, I was given like a peanut M&M for every like commandment I memorized. (laughs) And like I was all in for the sugar. So I was like, you know, I got those 10 commandments down. Well, those are beliefs, whether they become meaningful to me or not, is totally a different thing. So psychologists 
we understand a pretty complicated process of how do you take beliefs that are out there, you know, whether they're beliefs, you know, that are on my Twitter homepage or, you know, their beliefs that I picked up from an article I read or from my neighbor or my husband or, you know, Fuller. And what makes something become meaningful and actually have like orienting power on our life, like inform our identity, inform how we see the world, inform how we make decisions and what motivates behavior. I had an interesting example of this the other day happened to me. I was working on an adult ADHD assessment Mm. as part of my practicum internship experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was the afternoon and I was getting kind of tired and I was hitting a kind of a energy lull Uh and I was sitting there and I looked at, I looked at this client and I was like, you know what? They are God's child And we are here to provide a really important service Mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, they want to know if they have ADHD, they're thinking about what they're doing with their life. And, Mm -hmm. and like, okay, we are equipped to do this. I'm not, I'm not equipped, but I'm assisting the person who's equipped. And it perked me up and it was Mm -hmm. like, okay. Mm -hmm. And I got a second wind Mm -hmm. and I refocused Mm -hmm. uh, on the task at hand to make sure that I was administering this Mm -hmm. assessment in the best possible way. Mm -hmm. So that we'd have good data, you know, and like Mm -hmm. that was like, I mean, it's a little basic, but it was a cool moment Mm -hmm. to be like, oh, my like my religious values just affected my behavior in a way that is now congruent with my values. That's how I talk Mm -hmm. about it Mm -hmm. as a training psychologist Mm -hmm. of like, Mm -hmm. I do want to be like that. Mm -hmm. I want Mm -hmm. to be like that. And then here Mm -hmm. I in this instance, I did. And it was directly connected to my beliefs. And it was very cool. That's awesome. I love that. Everybody, please clap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Round of applause. No, I mean, I, no, I don't share it to brag. I just, it was no, clear, clarifying. And honestly, you know, I know we're getting there down the pipeline of the conversation, but that sense of congruence is so central to thriving. Yeah. When we leave, live congruent lives that are aligned with our values, our passions, our gifts, our strengths, our places of contribution, that's really where we experience not just well-being and life satisfaction, but really in a deep way. Yeah. So to let me connect where we've been and then we'll resume again, just because I, okay. I, I do like this kind of through line that we've got. So you got interested in positive psychology because of thriving. Positive psychology is it's not just the absence of maladies. Okay. It's like, what does a real healthy, thriving mm-hmm. mind mm-hmm. look like? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's related to COVID and the other stuff through the idea that like people need some sort of orienting set of beliefs or values mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to make mm-hmm. sense of the world, especially during negative experiences and tribulations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So mm-hmm. now we're still talking about the context of religion and why yeah. it matters to this mm-hmm. conversation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'd like to point to two other really practical things that religion provides. So you've got the belief system and then also you have a social context. And this is where spirituality and religion can differentiate because spirituality is often an individual experience. And sometimes there is a community, sometimes it's shared informally, and sometimes it is really more networked or more intentional with the community. So social contexts are so important. I mean, like we have a science of relationality right now that's booming interpersonal neurobiology. The dominant framework in uh, developmental psychology is relational developmental systems that look looks at how humans are shaped and formed through relationships. We know our genetic 
predispositions, the way our genes are expressed, are even altered through relationships. So relationships are hugely powerful. And in our increasingly, um, I often talk that our our society is is leaving the traditional structures that made up, like especially Western United States. This is the bowling alone idea where we had the YMCA, we had congregations, we had, you know, the Masonic Temple is across the street from Fuller. These institutions that really created the social fabric of our country are really falling apart. And and that I don't mean necessarily a negative connotation. I used to think that was just awful. But now we're really seeing a reorganization around networks and platforms in systems. So I often talk about transitioning from what have been called mediating structures, structures that help people grow into contributing adults to hopefully mediating systems. But systems tend to be more transient, not have the accountability and intimacy that these institutions used to have. And they often don't have those comprehensive belief systems. So religion, like, let's just think a congregation, you know, there's mentors, whether it's, you know, a guru or a priest or a pastor that's hopefully doing good work and is well relationally formed as well. There are teachers, there are opportunities to serve, there's opportunities to learn, there's opportunities for models, for spiritual models or role modeling. So all this really good stuff happens within the social context of religion or can, right? I've been thinking about mediating structures as well. Like, you know, the, an example that I often hear is the military, right? Uh-huh. So the military is an organization that really churns out a certain kind of person. Mm-hmm. If you join the military, you expect to be changed in a set of particular ways. Mm-hmm. And when you come out, you're going to be loyal. You're going to be disciplined, mm-hmm. right? You're going to be able to interact with most sectors of society in a mm-hmm. polite way. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. going to be, you know, whatever. You'll be more mm-hmm. courageous. Mm-hmm. And we come to expect that. If if I'm hiring for a job and I see that someone is a military veteran, I have some assumptions about the way that their character might be different than the other applicant who's been, I don't know, a freelance beat maker for his 20s yeah, or something, yeah, right? Yeah, right. And then I've been thinking about it in terms of my own PsyD program that uh-huh. I am being trained to think scientifically. Mm-hmm. That is one of the things that I'm mm-hmm. I'm noticing mm-hmm. in myself. I'm thinking about, is that anecdotal or is that something that could be shown? You know, could that, is that an empirical question that could mm-hmm. be actually, could we resolve that? Or is someone just kind of talking about their intuitions Mm -hmm. in a way that they're a good talker and Mm -hmm. they've been rewarded for talking good their (laughs) whole life? And do I need to listen to that? You know, Mm -hmm. and and like if I'm trying to prove something that I have a feeling is true, like how Mm -hmm. do I show that in a way that if someone's trying to poke holes in it? I've already addressed those things and I'm, and then therefore I'm making sure that I'm not wrong about my intuitions and I'm challenging those. Right. And I'm not just trying to prove my ideas. This is a kind of formation. It's not nearly as totalizing as the military is because I don't have to get up at a certain time and they're not forcing me to be in good physical shape. Obviously, Uh, (laughs) you know, there's a lot of differences, but it is turning me into a kind of a thinker and a kind of a worker and researcher in a way that I'm actually really valuing. And I, and it Mm. is kind of priceless Mm -hmm. and we don't, I was never a part of one of those structures until Mm -hmm. I did this graduate school. Mm. You know, I went to undergrad. I was in a band. A band doesn't really turn you into any kind of person. Marriage, I suppose is, is 
turning me into a kind of person and the fatherhood is turning me into a kind of a person in, in some ways, but they are not as specific. And mm-hmm. that's what's interesting about these structures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So Dan, just given what I know about your mind and curiosities, there is an extraordinary neuroscientist at USC named Mary Helen Imordino Yang. And she is in the Rossier School of Education. And some of her, she is, I would say, the leading researcher on the process of meaning making and what is going on in the human brain when those beliefs actually become meaningful. She also has demonstrated how education systems, environments, shape kids' brains. So just like you were saying, so if you put a kid in a certain type of school system that is performance oriented, they develop like, you know, habits, neurological habits that get reinforced, primed, et cetera, that continue to grow. And so I think what you're saying, you know, the environments that we embed ourselves in deeply shape us. And I think more so than we realize, like, you know, it makes you question like, huh, you know, if I went to a Montessori school, would I be a different thinker? You know, would I have a different, you know, epistemology <laughs> if then if I went to like an Anglican preschool? I, I don't know that we know enough and we also know the human mind is malleable and can change, not to jump ahead, but again, one of my basic tenets of thriving is that thriving has to do with the good fit. So, you know, as a parent of three very different children, different learners, one of my major goals or hopes is to find environments in which they thrive and become their best self. Mm. So that means three different schools for my kids. Uh, Because they just learn and do life and relate differently. But that also changes the family dynamic when you have three schools because they're, that's busy. Well, that's so, yeah, that's so interesting. One of the ways actually that being in a band did form me, it created Mm -hmm. habits by which we just mean neural pathways and that are very deeply entrenched. And it's something I'm struggling with now in my late Mm -hmm. thirties is that Mm -hmm. through my entire twenties, I trained myself that the evening is Mm -hmm. for partying. Uh-huh. <laughs> and not we weren't like a we were not that kind of a rock band. Like I don't mean partying in like the Led Zeppelin sense. <laughs> but I do mean like, yeah, you have two or three drinks after the show mm-hmm. because probably you've got friends who came to visit you for the show. Yeah. And if you don't, you're gonna go talk to fans mm-hmm. and you might not be in the mood, so you have a drink and then it puts you in a social mood. Mm-hmm. And then when we're in the studio or we're writing a record, renting an mm-hmm. apartment together. You have drinks in the evening because you're all hanging out and you you're in a band for a living. And now it's like, you know, actually getting my party on a little bit on a weeknight is not very congruent with the stuff I have going. Hmm. You know, like that's not Hmm. I don't like that. I still have that as a default Mm -hmm. for the evening. Like Mm -hmm. I could read in the evening. There's a lot of things I could do in the evening that Mm -hmm. bring me joy. But Mm -hmm. my impulse mm-hmm. is to pour a drink or something mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's what I did for 10 years. Yeah. You know, as a structural part of my job right. and living, cause I had a, a weird job <laughs> and that's another, it's a, it's another example of these environments. They really shape us. And if totally. I hadn't been in a band for 10 years, I probably wouldn't have that same intuition or behavior habit. I would have other ones. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. I am having a senior moment. Is it Paul? The guy who did the Atomic Habits book, his whole work on like science of habits is really, really fascinating in terms of, yeah, what is it, 29 days, but he has some really great thoughts yeah. 
and I mean, and science backed about how you can change habits. Yeah. And you, we bring up like things like, you know, whether it's alcohol, sugar or whatever, or exercise, that is, you know, there's a lot of embodied implications for those things. So that is, that is true. And, and maybe you would have found that. And if it wasn't the band, it would have been, I don't know. Sure. But it's just yeah. good to be mindful. But it, you know, when you were talking, it made me think my husband and I chose the elementary school that our kids was going to go to. We live in an odd area where 33% of the kids go to private schools. We ended up picking an independent Catholic school because we loved the adults that were coming out of that school. Mm. It wasn't really necessarily about the degree of academic education, but it was what they were being formed and shaped to become. Yeah. And that that's worked out really, really well, but that's what we were after. And so, you know, who, who knows like what, what they would be like if they went elsewhere, would they be the same? Not exactly, but yeah, you can't know the counterfactuals, but we can know that environment makes a huge difference. And so I believe you had one more item about religion before we move towards virtue. What else did mm-hmm. you want to add? Okay. So I think the practical things, beliefs, the social context, relationships, and the last would be practices. So mm. the habits that we cultivate in a religious context, it's, there are very explicit cultural liturgies or tools that we learn, whether it's prayer, worship, again, meeting with people. And from a psychological perspective, a lot of these practices are really important because they either help us with what we know now we call regulation, like emotional regulation to calm us, different forms of prayer, whether they're contemplative or otherwise meditating on scripture, Lectio Divinas, um, are all really important for regulating us. And they also orient us, especially when they're like scripture or there's teaching involved. But they also serve to elevate us. And I don't hear this talked about in religion so much, but that is so much of the point of worship is elevation, is that emotional arousal that points us towards something bigger than ourselves, that arouses our senses, you know, acoustically, I mean, smells and bells in some traditions, visually, different traditions go for different aesthetic arousal that really helps us elevate and not just be mindful of something bigger than ourselves and experience transcendence, but also from a thriving perspective, helps us also move forward. And within positive psychology, there's a very significant theory that's referred to uh, the broaden and build theory that was coined by Barbara Fredrickson at UNC. And the very oversimplified version of broaden and build is that positive emotions help us calm down, but open us up. They broaden us so that we can be more creative, more generative, and connect more with others, which becomes a very helpful perpetuating cycle. Yeah, virtuous so, cycle. Yeah. So rich, uh, religion at its best provides those. And some traditions do it differently. And I think people seek different denominational experiences or religion or spiritual experiences because they resonate more with different, you know, practices. I mean, we use the word vibe all the time these days. I think it's actually a great way to think about religious experience or religious congregations. What kind of vibe works for you? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's, yeah. it, we, we mock that. And, you know, I think there's been, uh, at least like in the evangelical tradition in the last decade plus, you know, church shopping. Oh, it's not a consumer orientation. You just go to the church that you're supposed to go to and invest in that community. 
And I think there's a lot of wisdom there, but also I find that these structures can become so rigid that they, they're not growing to meet the needs or meet the vibe <laughs> to resonate with the people that they're serving. Yeah, that is so interesting. There's a lot in there, and I, I want to kind of respond to a couple different bits. So it, in one sense, this idea of not just self-regulation, but also elevation of the mm-hmm. self makes religion a particular and the practice of one's faith mm-hmm. the sort of the organized practice where mm. there are people are doing similar things because they work mm-hmm. that is like a perfect bedfellow for positive psychology it seems yes oh absolutely i've made a l- career out of that bedfellow. <laughs> okay it's at least good enough to have uh, made your whole career the other question i have is like I do not come from a charismatic background. I have Mm. very little experience with charismatic forms of worship. Mm -hmm. I do have experience with contemplative practice, which is Mm. kind of the quiet version of Mm -hmm. the charismatic Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. approach, you know, in terms of its direct experience and it's, it's non, it's as unmediated as possible. Mm. But of course I uh, really respect the work of uh, Sarah Lane Ritchie, our mutual, do you know, do you know her? Or at Not least her real work. well, just okay. through the theopsych. Yeah. But her work around spiritual technologies and like we're always mediating and we're always mm-hmm. setting mm-hmm. ourselves up to succeed. So I know that none of it – there's no such thing as a totally pure experience. But mm-hmm. but like I'm wondering if you know of research around the more charismatic Pentecostal type mm-hmm. expressions. Like mm-hmm. is there like peer-reviewed research on what's going on for people, what it's bringing to the table, that kind of a thing? Yeah. So, you know, that's so interesting that you say that. I haven't seen anything super recently, but I know like even in the 80s and 90s, like Arch Hart, who was a dean at Fuller, you know, was doing like neuro, whatever more primitive neuro analysis we had of people speaking in tongues. Okay. And so definitely there's been that. I think Andrew Newberg has also done some interesting studies on charismatic experiences. The thing that's super trendy right now is the psychedelics research. Yes. So David Yaden, who I think right now is like a research uh, professor at Johns Hopkins, He does a lot of work on transcendent emotions, and he just published, you did a study of semantic analysis of Facebook pages, of how people are talking about religion and spirituality. This like just came out like five minutes ago. And he also gave them a questionnaire about unitive experiences or religious experiences. It was really fascinating to see, to get at this growing distinction between how people who are religious might talk about experiences and how those who aren't. Um, But the psychedelics thing is exploding. In fact, like Union Theological Seminary in Berkeley just announced a new psychedelics lab. I got that email literally, I think it was yesterday or Saturday. Um, So there's lots of very interesting work on the spiritual experiences through mediated through substances. If you're the kind of person who is interested in and takes seriously any kind of ecstatic experience on psychedelics Mm. or Mm. maybe take enough marijuana or whatever, and if you think that there's something to that, should you also, to be consistent, take speaking in tongues seriously? I mean, are we – Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You should not be looking down on the the blubbering Pentecostals and thinking that the guy on a trip is really learning something about himself, right? 
Right. I mean, you got to consider both ends of the spectrum. Now, I confess, I am one of God's frozen chosen, a Presbyterian. Yeah. So that's not my background either. Either, you know, either of those two. I don't know if they're different ends of the same spectrum or same end of the, but you're right. You know, you have to take all these ecstatic experiences really seriously. I um, love architecture, random thing about me, but the cathedral at Chartres in France, I was obsessed with for a part of my life and was so excited to go. And when I learned that it was actually painted in brilliant colors initially, and all the stained glass was really purposely done to ignite ecstatic experiences for people in the Middle Ages. I just am fascinated by that aesthetic arousal. And someone raised in a more Calvinist tradition, which really didn't go for that. Um, Very fascinating to me, like how, I mean, you know, in my language, God speaks to us through different channels. Yeah. I, when I walked into Sagrada Familia Cathedral in Barcelona, I had a, you know, not like a, a drug type ecstatic experience where I was, my consciousness didn't change, but in that sense, but like, it was an experience of holy beauty. I mean, it was like, it was a religious experience. It's my favorite work of art I've ever beheld in my life. And that was, I was also thinking about cathedrals, you know, earlier when you were talking about aesthetics and and how they, those spaces are definitely designed to elevate us. And so in in a different way, and maybe your aesthetic, you know, and someone's aesthetic is closer to Mm. a cathedral, a a Catholic Mm -hmm. cathedral than Mm -hmm. it is Mm -hmm. a Hillsong concert. Right. But you know what? A lot of people are pretty tuned into a Hillsong concert because they also like seeing U2 or Arcade Fire in a massive mm-hmm. arena. Mm-hmm. And a lot more people are going to massive shows than are going to Catholic mm-hmm. cathedrals. So in some right. sense, it's if you are a snob about the aesthetics, you're not going to like that development. If you don't care about mm-hmm. the snobbery and you want people to mm-hmm. thrive where mm-hmm. they're at, mm-hmm. you might mm-hmm. not care between mm-hmm. Hillsong mm-hmm. and the Catholic Cathedral. Right, right. Or the Grand Canyon. You know, natural right. beauty does the same thing. But one thing that, you know, as a parent and as a researcher, especially in developmental sciences that I'm very intrigued in is that emotion, you know, it's a stimulus. Like the, the aesthetics that we're talking about. We're going to have yeah. to ask Cutter Calloway if he could study this for us. But, you know, it's like caffeine. Like the more you have, the less buzz you get from it, right? So when we are so overstimulated these days that to get awe, to get our attention, in fact, wow. is so challenging that the arousal needs to be, the stimulus needs to be so profound and big these days that sometimes like the stillness of walking into a cathedral, you know, that that requires a certain perception. So I, I just think that's all very, very fascinating. But, you know, like an old Christian tradition is fasting. Right. You know, and people fast from media at times. That gives us a higher sensitivity to it when we come back from those fastings. I'm on a social media fast right now, just a short one, but yeah, it's it's a it's a major it's a major difference already. Just the amount of times I don't it yeah it's it's removing stimulus rather than adding stimulus. Right, right. And that and I suppose removing stimulus can also have an elevating effect. How would you think about this? So you're talking about elevating, so mm-hmm. fasting. You could think of it as, well, you'll be elevated when you come back from the fast. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the first time you have a really good piece of meat after not eating meat for a month, you might have a kind of really profound aesthetic experience, an eating experience. Uh-huh. Or you could think of fasting as 
you are elevating other parts of yourself because right. you're denying this part. Yes. Right. And that's the idea I think behind fasting to pray is right. that like you're kind of sharpening other parts of your mind absolutely, and you'll have absolutely. a different prayer experience, right? Yes. Yes, totally. I think that's super profound. So it's a both end. It's the during the fast, turning down the volume and aspects of life so that you can amplify or turn up or hone, as you said, other aspects. And then I think it is also, though, for the breaking the fast so that we might have greater impact in those areas. So I think super practical since you've brought up COVID. I mean, we were all on a social fast, whether we liked it or not. And, you know, I think many people had really high expectations of social restrictions being lifted of like, oh, I'm going to pursue these really meaningful relationships. I got a lot clearer on who matters to me and mm -hmm. who are the most life-giving relationships. And those are the ones I really want to pursue. I mean, I, I talked yeah. about like, I did the Mario Kondo of the social life of getting socially tidy right. during COVID. And then, you know, the reality of life is there's just when you're plunged back into reality, there's a lot of people out there and realizing that, oh, I, I, I'm not as intentional as I anticipated, or I don't quite have the flexibility that I did, but I've learned a lot of how I want to spend those energies. Um, yeah. My wife and I have been talking about that a bunch as, and COVID was a big part of that of like, yeah, reevaluating where, and also we had our first child and that changes everything, but COVID was a part of that as well of like, yeah, where to, like, where do we want to be putting our energy? What, who is our community? And and the big the big takeaway for us is we got very very close with my brother and sister in law, oh. um, much closer than we had been, and and now we are basically joined at the hip and want to be, and you know we are like okay we're not going to go anywhere without each other. Mm. That's what we kind of figured out mm. through COVID. Um, and uh, also, I think through there becoming so close with our son and, mm. you know, that those overlapped nicely in that sense. I've been having a blast talking with former guest Tony Jones, uh, responding to this kind of mega hit Christianity Today podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And if you become a patron of this show, you can listen to those response episodes that he and I have been doing. Uh, every couple episodes of the Mars Hill podcast, we will do about an hour of our own response. Um, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Dan Koch. It's five bucks a month. And it also includes possibly the best thing uh, related to, <laughs> to all things in the Yoga Permission camp. Possibly the best thing is the Facebook group which is for patrons only. There are very good reasons for that. It is an awesome uh, online community. So if you want to think about that, patreon.com slash Dan Koch and back to my chat with Pam King. Okay, I'd like to move on to virtue because I just want to make sure that we are able to talk about virtue and then and culminate it all with thriving before we run awesome. out of time. So, okay. so that was religion and that was why yeah. religion yeah. is important to this conversation. And we've already talked a little bit about habit and I imagine mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. very related mm -hmm. to virtue. Mm -hmm. So maybe just define virtue as you see it as a developmental researcher. Yeah. So I'll talk about virtue as a psychologist. Um, and that gets intimidating because philosophers, you know, might approach it differently and can't be an expert at everything. Sure. So as a psychologist, I understand virtue or virtues to be a capacity, like a psychological capacity that enables us to know, feel, and do what is right 
and good in various settings at different times. Say it again. So virtues enable us to know, to feel, and to do what is right and good in different settings at different times. So already the connection to thriving is here because you mentioned that thriving is about fit. Right. Thriving is right. not one size fit all. Thriving for my wife exactly. is not thriving for me in a lot of the details, right? <laughs> yeah. And so virtue also has this goodness of fit element mm-hmm. where it's like it's it's got a discernment angle, I guess is a, is one way of saying it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So one way like a really kind of crass way to think about virtue and I really like to think about the different virtues and how they play this out differently. But all of, from my perspective, virtues have like a navigational role, they like serve as a GPS, like they orient you in the right direction, Mm -hmm. but they also motivate you. They have that emotional quality. So joy is the virtue that I have spent the most time thinking about. And not Mm -hmm. all people think of joy as a virtue, but I do. I prefer a thicker understanding of joy than just like, oh, happy, delightful, positive feeling. So, but joy to me, enduring true joy is our response to what matters most in life. So those things that give us the most joy are like the profound things like having, you know, your first child or your second or third for that matter, being connected to your brother and sister-in-law, playing a fine guitar that just, you know, feels great (laughs) on the fingertips. And because that's your passion, right? That matters to you. To me, I wouldn't know what I was doing. That would not be a huge source of joy for me. Mm -hmm. So these things that matter most they require our thoughts to think about what matters. So that's where virtue becomes a virtuous cycle because the positive emotion of joy reinforces these good things in our lives. And my understanding of joy is really thick and like joy and justice become their great bedfellows uh, because what really matters are things that work towards justice. So my gain at someone else's plight is not true joy. Right. And now we can talk about, you know, sin, fallen nature, et cetera, different worldviews competing me. Yeah. Or personality disorders that could maybe make it such that for some people, someone else's gain, like, I mean, I think of Donald Trump, I I honestly think that, you know, obviously I'm not going to diagnose him with anything, but it sure seems like he genuinely enjoys beating his opponents and winning at their expense. That seems to be a personality trait of that man, of him as a man, at least as he presents himself. At right? least as is presented, yeah. Yeah, and, and a lot of, I think, testimony of people that know him seem to kind of agree on that. That is, I would say, a disordered way of being, and most people are actually not that way. Most people, I think, when they are, again, and now I'm kind of using the old school, like, free of psychopathology, mm-hmm. but even just people at like a, a 50th percentile mm-hmm. level of health mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. don't love crushing their opponents. No, you know, they, they actually, if they can help their friend and they are also helped and everybody is happier, most people consider that a win. And that would be more meaningful than winning at their, Expense. at their fr- yeah friends, uh, cost. Demise. Yes. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the book that Justin Barrett and I have coming out in July on evolutionary psychology and thriving, that's one of the huge points we make, you know, from an, if we just look from an evolutionary psychological perspective, the human beast, you know, species is really pro-social. We really are. I mean, our relationality is really 
and always been super important to us. So that's an interesting distinction because it might be true. And and I've been looking at the book, by the way, I got an advanced copy. It's awesome. Uh, it's a super cool angle on all of this stuff and really interesting sort of combining of concepts. But one one way of thinking about this is like it might be true that it is normal evolutionarily for us to prefer a leader who is mm. a bit more mm. – they are going to make us win at someone else's ex- – at another group's expense, another mm-hmm. tribe that we mm-hmm. don't know. That mm-hmm. is a – that's a psychologically distinct thing from I actually want this person that I know mm-hmm. to fail right. as I succeed. Yes. If that were the case, we would not have evolved in bands of up to 200 people, right? No. Like we would just be a different – that's a different animal. Mm-hmm. That is a different mm-hmm. creature, right? <laughs> Totally. Absolutely. No, that's a great distinction. And what's interesting, I think, at this day and age, you know, one of our premises of the book is that the human brain is not evolving from a genetic perspective. We're not, you know, mutating like we used to, but because we have this incredible mind, we can think ourselves out of problems. We can learn, realize things that in this day and age in our deeply interconnected world, I mean, like the whole globe just went through, you know, a communal experience of COVID and now we're facing climate change that we are realizing that the out group is maybe not so far out as we thought. And I think that is going to be a really interesting trend ontologically, you know, to even watch where the planet goes, especially the Western mind, which tends to be more individual oriented in the way we, you know, our identity is much more autonomous. Our habits are more autonomous. It'll be interesting to see how things change in the next couple of decades. Isn't that one of the better critiques as well of some of when evolutionary psychology can sometimes be an overreach by certain thinkers that because we are no longer evolving biologically, Mm -hmm. we are evolving though. I I interviewed Justin about this over a year ago. So longtime listeners might remember the conversation, uh, the episode called who's afraid of evolutionary psychology, but we talked about, we now evolve through culture. Basically we have Mm -hmm. cultural evolution. We Mm -hmm. don't have Mm -hmm. biological evolution Mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. And so Even if you describe what it was like for biologically similar humans Mm -hmm. in 150, 150,000 BC or something, you, you can't jump right to today because we have cultural evolution that they didn't have that everybody is socialized with now Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. is now a part of our brain because Mm -hmm. we create, Mm -hmm. you know, habits Mm -hmm. out of those socialized patterns of thought and behavior. Right. So, yeah, I mean, even what I said, my definition of virtue is doing what is right and good or knowing, feeling, doing what is right and good in different settings at different times. Right. So and I I kind of meant like in my life, like what worked in high school in the 80s versus what works now. But I mean, let's go since I am a child of the 80s. I still got the big hair to show it. Uh huh you know, back to the future, right? Like it's so goofy because people have the wrong habits. They go, it doesn't work. They don't fit. But and then going back to the bigger picture of virtue. So what enables virtue to be plastic and malleable and adaptive in different contexts and times is that virtue is informed by our narrative identity. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is, I would say, one of the arguments I make within psychology. Um, Sarah Schnichter at Baylor and I um, and a colleague, Ben Holtberg, uh, worked really hard across a few publications to, to adapt Dan McAdams' personality theory and talk about transcendent narrative identity. So our 
narrative identity is the evolving story we tell about our lives. So it reflects those beliefs that we were talking about before and when they become salient and central to our identity. Now, virtue can't just have any narrative identity. It can't have a narcissistic narrative identity. It has to be other-oriented. So that's why I would say a transcendent narrative identity. So, and, and we can, you know, argue and split hairs, just transcendent mean otherworldly, supernatural, or just moral beyond the self. So depending on my audience, you know, it's just got to at least be beyond the self. And I would say beyond the in-group because we're beyond just benefiting our own. My example with the client is an exa- is this, right, of like it was yes. other oriented. I don't know yes. this person. They're exactly. not a friend of mine. I'm not going to have a social relationship with them because that would be ethically inappropriate, not cool. But so so they're not in my in group, but it's other oriented. My the identity of like, OK, I am a, I'm a training psychologist, but I'm also a Christian. And I believe that this yeah. person yeah. is is deserving of my best for this very important yeah thing in their life. And so I need to give them my best. Absolutely. You actually, when you explained it, appealed to dignity. That was the word mm. you used. Or maybe that's what I heard. Child of God. Yes. Child yeah. of God. But we, yeah. I mean, you appealed to your transcendent narrative. Yeah. And yes. that aspect of, I am a servant of God's children um, yeah. in the psychological capacity is part of your identity. And that is, yeah. you saw how powerful it was. It, over- it worked immediately. Right. I literally got more energy and I was tired. I mean, it was, it was actually a pretty incredible experience. Yeah. Uh, let, let me think of a few more good stories I can tell about myself now. Um, <laughs> but I do wonder it's, I know you're not a clinician, but I bet you have some thoughts. If, if you're right, that virtues have to be informed are informed by our narrative identity. Mm-hmm. And if virtues are necessary for a thriving life, Mm-hmm. And I'm working with a client mm-hmm. who I want to have a thriving life. Mm-hmm. What are the clinical implications of that marriage of mm-hmm. I- narrative identity, the story mm-hmm. I tell about myself mm-hmm. and the virtues that I ought mm-hmm. to be cultivating? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about that for, for, for people, either for clinicians who have clients or people who see a therapist, the kind of work they might be doing with their therapist? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I did a deep thought. And are you asking me to reflect on... You as the clinician or how you are thinking about your client? Well, most there are more people listening who are clients themselves than okay. there are people who have clients, mm-hmm. although there are mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. of psychologists who listen to the show, mm-hmm. therapists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, any of it, just like in terms of the kind of work that one does yeah. in a therapy session, sure. the fact that there's a connection between your narrative identity and yeah. these virtues, yeah. what does that say about the, that clinical okay. work? This is huge. Okay. Cause I got to give you the other half of virtue. Oh, first. okay. Great. So, so there's we're, this we're narrative come part. back to this question then. Great. Yeah, no, no, but no, it's all part of it. So there's okay. the narrative part, the narrative identity part, but then there's all these psychological habits or psychological capacities or tendencies that we have. So mm-hmm. let's just think about regulations since we brought that up, because this comes up in therapy too. So you need to be reasonably emotionally regulated to be a virtuous person. You need to develop Mm. capacities like empathy, perspective taking. You're actually, your attachment style greatly impacts what kind of a virtuous person you are. Mm. If you're attachment avoidant, or if you're insecure and clinging on to people all the time, it's super, you're a people pleaser. You know, it's super hard to be virtuous and be honest and, you know, uh, have patience and delay gratification. So, In therapy, obviously, there's a lot of narrative work 
about helping the client rework their narrative identity of who they are, whether a person of faith in God's eyes, who they are, you know, if they're trying to cope, what are the beliefs they find meaning from? How do they construct hope in their life? How do they think about hope, whether they're like love Jesus or not? How do they deal with trauma? How do they make sense of violation by sacred sources, by, Hmm. you know, the church, et cetera. So that is one element of, of reworking that narrative identity. So narrative approaches to therapy can be very helpful. But at the same time, there's also got to be that deep psychological work of shaping the technical term in psychology we use is characteristic adaptations, which is like, I don't know, irritable bowel of psychology. It means nothing, you know, it's like, but it's, it's these psychological habits that are everything from our motivation systems to our attachment schemas to our regulation patterns. So again, like even people who have internal self-regulation, which actually refers more to goal setting, people who can set goals that are wise <laughs> and realistic and take baby steps to pursue them are more apt to be virtuous and more apt to thrive, right? Hmm. For like your ADHD client who like starts something and then can't finish, like they're not a thriving person. That's really hard. It's really frustrating. And it's really frustrating when you sabotage your own journey. So like therapy has so many different ways to sculpt and form and nurture someone for a virtuous life. At the risk of a little too much inside baseball that I know you and I will appreciate and maybe some people will think is too much, but There is a lot of tension within the psychological community between generally more brief, Mm. quote, Mm evidence-based, unquote, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. interventions, you know, cognitive Mm -hmm. behavioral therapy, Mm -hmm. learning Mm -hmm. some skills Mm -hmm. here and there, Mm -hmm. uh, very in the moment. You can do these in any kind of outpatient or governmental Mm -hmm. setting Mm -hmm. in six Mm -hmm. weeks, 12 weeks. Sure. And then the longer, less structured, often more narrative-focused work of psychotherapy where you might work with a client indefinitely and mm-hmm. and get into their family of origin and get all this mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a tension there and and I am my intuition is to integrate them and and think about the needs and the time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I I think that this might be an example we could use this as an example of 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 how to think about that, right? So mm-hmm. let's mm-hmm. say you have someone who is struggling with their family, you know, maybe they're, Mm -hmm. they're not treating their kids the way they'd like to treat them. Mm -hmm. They have turned into a kind of a parent. They, they didn't think that they wanted to become, Mm -hmm. but part of the reason that is, is that they've got an anxiety disorder. And every time that a certain thought comes in, they ruminate on it and they become dysregulated. They, their heart starts racing, they get in a bad mood Mm -hmm. and then they take that out on their kids. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, let's say also their mom had an anxiety disorder. Okay, so right. okay, we've got now I want to do something short term with them. Like when right. you start having a panic mm-hmm. attack or an anxiety mm-hmm. attack, like mm-hmm. how do we think about that? Can we disrupt mm-hmm. that? Can mm-hmm. we get in? Can we get some can we get mm-hmm. some metaphors that we can think through? But then also let's zoom out. Let's talk about your parents and mm-hmm. let's talk about your broader convers- relationship mm-hmm. with your kid and what was your mom like to you when mm-hmm. she was dealing with panic? And mm-hmm. you know, so it's like you got to have both. And and I don't understand people who exclusively want to do the kind of behavioral therapy and not look at the story. But I also get frustrated with friends and acquaintances that have boomerangs so far away from that stuff that they don't want to really learn those skills or op- do that stuff Absolutely. when that would really help them get yes. a little space, you know? Yes. Absolutely. So is that jive for you? Oh my gosh, I'm about to come out of my seat. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I don't think it was and, especially profound, Pam. I think yeah. it was a pretty normal uh, analysis, no, well, but thank well, you. And it, so you've been making me wait 
to talk about Thrive. Uh, that's yeah. Perhaps, so that's why you're going to jump out of your chair as yeah, I've been well, making you hold off. <laughs> perhaps one of my, you know, I've been, I've been at this for a couple of decades. So there's a lot of things that I'm passionate about, but maybe one of the most orienting and most important concepts for all of my work is the Greek word telos. And so, you know, we Greek telos is purpose or goal or sense of completion. And if I had like the Pam King magic wand, I wish all my clinician colleagues, friends, et cetera, held a telos that mm. was really full for their clients. So, and I'm going to come from my understanding of telos that is informed theologically, but it's also informed psychologically. Yeah. And this becomes the foundation of thriving of how does a person grow into their most authentic? How do they become their most authentic, you know, best self with and for others? So in relationship, not just relationships that give to me and support me, but relationships where I contribute, that is aligned with my evolving ethical ideals and my sense of like spiritual devotion and commitment. Now, if I was speaking with a purely Christian audience or theologically oriented audience, I would talk about the image of God, the Trinity, being unique persons, particular persons in relatedness being conformed to the image of God in Christ. So if our pursuit of selfness in becoming my best self, you know, violates relationships and violates me becoming more Christ-like, that, that we're, we're askew there. So that becomes that GPS, like where we can only go like, oh, wow, wow, I'm so excited about my work at Fuller at the Thrive Center, but like I'm out of balance. Um, I'm, I'm comparing myself too much. I'm having these insecure thoughts. I'm cooking crappy dinners at home. Just kidding. Um, but, you know, life <laughs> Never, is askew. Yeah. <laughs> that, that becomes an indicator to me that I'm a bit off course, that I need to mm. reorient it. So going back to clinicians, I really wish clinicians held this view in mind that they're trying to enable their clients to not just function, but operate at a level where they can pursue that sense of purpose. That's their fullness of self in relationship and, and, you know, virtuous becoming like Christ, et cetera. And that whether you're doing, you know, a brief intervention and you've got, you know, someone on an HMO who's getting panic attacks, I often talk very simplistically or oversimplistically about below the line and above the line. Yeah. You might be trying to get them just to the line or, or yeah. not too deep, but like, if you could at least tell them like, Hey, I'm trying to get you so you can pursue this sense of purpose. You know, here's a book or, you know, the, the goal is because actually when you focus on something positive, and this is where positive psychology is great. When you're activated and pursuing something that you love, you know, you get that sense of flow. You, you know, you, you actually get involved with people who are more like-minded. Right. Following purpose in the work of Bill Damon um, at Stanford and another uh, one of his uh, quote unquote disciples, Kendall Bronk at Claremont Graduate School, do just great work. And there's a whole now slew of purpose researchers at Cornell and Notre Dame and elsewise. But it purpose is insane. Like when you pursue yeah. a purpose, it like brings everything online for you. So I'm always like, how do we help get people to a place where they can do that? Yeah. And, you know, narcissism gets in the way bipolar gets in the way, but we got to give people skills, medicine, so that in self-awareness, so that when they realize like, oh, I'm, I'm in a bad place, I've got to realign. I might need to step off the path and get healthy so then I can go back. But if, whether you're doing psychoanalysis, <laughs> object relations, 
DBT, I, I wish it was in this frame of moving towards this, this sense of becoming and othering with people. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, as someone who's in the middle of, and again, this is kind of inside baseball, but a fairly down the middle APA doctoral uh-huh. psychology, yeah. psycholo- psychology program, meaning our school is not really polemical about any particular mm-hmm. approach or whatever. Mm-hmm. We, we get a nice widespread in terms of what mm-hmm. we're taught. I mean, we, we, we learn a lot about like strengths-based work with clients, yeah, yeah, which yeah, is very, great. feels like it's lining right up with what Absolutely. you're talking about. Yes. And, yes. and I had a question for you that I think is, is a little less, a little less inside baseball, although it's going to sound like it. When you say you want a clinician to have a telos in mind for their, for every client, do you mean the same telos, the same purpose for each client, or does each client kind of get their own Tell us based on the evolving knowledge of an interaction with the client as you get to know them better. And I, the reason I say that's not necessarily inside baseball is because there's implications for us as individual people, whether right. we're clients or not. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, everyone's tell us is a guitar playing podcaster, grad student, <laughs> father, brother who drinks yeah, coffee who, and who, Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> no, um, no, of course. No. So this notion of tell us is really a framework that I, I hope and I have found people find it extremely helpful to think about, oh, yeah, it is about me. I mean, so much of my experience of the Christian, Christian tradition really downplayed the I and the self. You know, mm-hmm. especially for women, especially for women. I mean, yeah. I went to Urbana, you know, in college and was like, you know, I heard the, you know, the symbol of Christianity is not an eye. It's a cross and nobody should ever see you. They should only see Jesus. Yeah. And and yes, they should see Jesus. I am like a transfiguration moment person all the time. Like, you know, when their heads go up, they see Jesus, you know, at the top of the mountain it's transfiguration. But I think people can experience Christ and know God more fully when we live into who God enabled us to be. So I am often found saying that like conformity to the image of God in Christ does not mean uniformity. So, you know, you're going to be like Jesus really differently than I'm going to be like Jesus. And so a tongue in cheek way, I think I actually said it for the first time at those theopsych lectures was that, you know, an overly oversimplified way to think about it would be like your goal. Like, what are your goals? Like, what do you love as a person, but also about your roles? Like, what's your role? The telos is at this intersection of goals, roles, you know, whether it's broader society, your family of origin, your friends, your peer group, your workplace, whatever those roles are. And then, you know, the very controversial soul. Um, So your roles, goals and soul and soul. I mean, tongue in cheek for like, you know, that sense of ethics are becoming like Christ and and that sense of spiritual of spirituality. So a multi, it's kind of like a multifaceted five-year plan in a sense. Yeah. And it adapts. It and adapts. it changes. Yeah. And, yeah. and your five-year plan is not right. the same one 10 years from now, no, but it's like, no, 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 which no. way right. am I headed in all these yeah. various capacities? Yeah. yeah. So you said, um, you mentioned that, you know, do some contemplative stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like I found the Ignatian prayer really helpful in my life. I'm not sure if that's something that you've habitually practiced. Um, and, which, which Ignatian practice? Yeah, which Ignatian, right. The I'm, examine? I'm thinking, the examine, yes. Yeah. Uh, for, so for listeners who don't know, the examine is like a, you do it once a day. You're kind of, you're rummaging through your day or yesterday, depending on what time of day you do it, like f- looking for God in whatever happened that day. And then there's also a bit where you look ahead to the next day. 
And, and it's really, I mean, it's really about telos and it is about congruence, which we've talked about. Like, as you look ahead to the next day, you're like, how can I live? And some people will say, literally look at your calendar, look at the things you have coming up tomorrow or later today and think, how can I engage in those activities like a like Christ-like way or like I want to yeah. be or something like that. Mm-hmm. I do find the examine really helpful and I don't really do it. I actually don't, I do almost nothing right now with my son, the age he is. Uh, I used to use the mornings and the mornings are, are just a giant cluster F given his <laughs> age and Diverse. grad school and everything. I mean, mornings are chaos uh, comparative to two years ago, but yeah, the examine I do find helpful. I mostly do like almost content free centering prayer, hmm. um, just because I have such a hyperactive mind. Mm-hmm. I think that ends up being kind of like the medicine I need most mm-hmm. often. But I, mm-hmm. um, but but one thing that my wife and I have both been doing is a gratitude journal. Oh, cool! Which is a little closer to examine. It's simpler. <laughs> it's like a it's one item every night, but never repeating. So you have to kind of think about it during the day and kind of notice things. Mm. And I got this from some positive psychology Yale lectures that were assigned to us as part of my program. And I've been I've been keeping up with it. And so has she. But yeah. So anyway, back to the examine. Yeah. Now that I've explained it and that was (laughs) how I was supposed to do is explain it. And I talked for a minute. But go ahead. No, no, exactly. Like, so when I'm in, you know, not a religious context and the exam is going to be lost on people. Yeah. Um, I, and, and because of my affection for joy, which I actually got involved with through Yale and Wolf, but I, I often invite people to make a habit of, you know, a, a daily reflection of where did you really experience joy? Where did you feel the most vivified, the most alive? And I, I also guide people not towards those extraordinary moments, but also like, you know, those sweet moments of like, this is one of my favorite mugs. I love the weight of it. It keeps my coffee hot. You know, it's a delight, but I have to be mindful to appreciate that, oh, these sweet things are little gifts in life. And that that is a little joy or delight. So, you know, if when we can center and be aware of sources of joy in our life and be mindful about chasing joy or pursuing more of those, and also those places that maybe aren't just sad or sorrowful, because I think joy and sorrow so much have to do with what matters. So when we feel extreme sorrow, that's getting that same thing of those things that really pull at our heart. But when we're just more frenetic or feel languishing or just, you know, it's the inattentive states often of like, oh, it's frustrating or it's not my thing. You know, there's certain parts of being a professor that just drain me. And I'm always trying to get less of that in my job description and more of the other life-giving things that that can be helpful of pointing us towards pathways of thriving. Yeah. Um, because it really is like a, you know, put your mask on before helping others type of a thing mm. where we do have a sort of finite amount of ourselves, our capacities, our mm-hmm. gifts, mm-hmm. our competencies to use for other people. And of course, we can self-actualize only toward our own self or maybe our family or something. And that does not qualify for your definition of thriving, which is mm-hmm. others, mm-hmm. Uh, others oriented. And transcendent. Mm -hmm. But if we are engaged in working on on others' behalf in some capacity, even if we're paid to do that, Mm -hmm. if we're at a diminished version of ourselves, then 
then at what we were able to give will be diminished. Or maybe so, we can keep it up at the exact same rate until we burn out and then we can't – then we have to turn the tap off entirely. And exactly. then if people were relying on us, they are now going without it. <laughs> you know, So it really – you know, self-care is kind of the – is the almost now trite term for it. But there is a really – there's a thick sense in which right. caring for yourself, loving yourself right. as your neighbor yeah. is it's, – yeah. it's actually really important. But you're, you're right to point yeah. out that there's such a stream of Christian thought – that is mm-hmm. that that is so beside the point, if not against the point, that Especially it's really just about pouring yep. ourselves out. It is really it yeah. is definitely a book I co-authored is called The Reciprocating Self. And um, so it's this notion of our telos is to become interdependent persons in relationship with others. So we're fully differentiated. Uh, we're not full of ourselves, but we're, you know. We have full selves in relationship with others. And and every time I rework that concept, you know, update the book or rewrite another chapter with that, I'm personally working through either like, oh, no, I kind of got to recover the self um, or I need to recover the communion with others or with God or with those close to me or friends like you, you know, I'm an avid journaler. I think like after my first son was born, I, I pretty much put down a journal for about eight or nine years with very few writing, just little kids keep us busy. And, you know, you pray, you know, God sustains you in other ways and you got to find it where you can. So that's part of life. Those are seasons like an odd type of fasting. Um, (laughs) A forced fast in a way. Yeah. Or a partial fast. So, well, we've we've gotten pretty satisfactorily through religion, virtue and thriving. Anything you want to add? I know you got to run here. Yeah, yeah. I would love to say, so I think it's just really important as you asked, you know, is there one form of thriving? No. Even if we have a homogeneous uh, audience that's like, oh yeah, glorifying God or union with God is our telos. Sure. But how do we get there? We need to get there by being our unique selves, by bettering the world around us. And we need the ethics, the morals, the spirituality to keep us on that trajectory. But it's really important to think, I mean, I think like in this day and age, when we have like issues like social injustice, we're really heightened. I almost like to think of DEI as dignity. I heard that word, whether you said it or not, but Mm -hmm. where we really need to emphasize the dignity of all persons and recognize that there are real barriers to people groups to thriving. We need to be really mindful that people with different cognitive styles thrive differently. Not all people you know, neuroatypical people don't thrive in typical graduate programs. Yeah, People with different abilities or lack thereof need special ways and understandings of thriving. And I think the more sometimes general we can think about thriving to think of this growth of becoming one's fullest self, this side of eternity that we can become in relationship with others is really important. Um, and there's no one size fits all of thriving. And I, I do a lot of work internationally in different countries, especially in uh, with kids in poverty. And, and that has been you know, really ingrained that these kids often with who live in technically extreme poverty are thriving many days more than I am. And I'm not mm. belittling or yeah. romanticizing poverty, but the relational robustness of their life, their joy in God and faith is is really I've learned a lot. I've been taken to school a lot. Yeah, that's that's almost I want that to be maybe its own episode, a future conversation. I, I, I want to look into more of that work you've done. Well, Dr. King, what an incredible conversation. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm going to have some links to your work 
uh, in the show notes for people who want to follow up. But I have a feeling you'll be back at some point. <laughs> well, it's always wonderful. Dan, thanks for the opportunity to speak. That helps me thrive. I love this. You can tell. And you just do a wonderful job bringing the whole person, uh, not just their mind, into the conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you. Got links to Dr. King's Thrive Center profile, her Twitter, and her Amazon author page in the show notes. Uh, thank you to her for joining me and, and you know, going a few different directions. Maybe, maybe that neither of us anticipated the conversation would go, but it was really, really enjoyable on my end. Uh, Josh Gilbert is my editor. He's available for other work. His email is in the show notes. And to become a patron and get at least two exclusive episodes per month and access to the Facebook group, head to patreon.com slash Dan Coke. Also in the show notes, there are links to sowyourdeconstructing.com. These are resources for Christians who are asking questions, usually new questions about their faith, um, but also a lot more than that. And uh, my Havana Swim Club record is out. It's perfect for summertime, poolside, or work slash study playlists. There is a link to Spotify in the show notes as well. See you guys next week. <laughs>